This evening I'd, I'd like to talk about and focus upon one really very specific quality of heart and mind and its place in the practice we're doing here. And the quality of heart I'd like to speak about is the quality of reverence. Reverence may be a concept for us that feels to be really kind of shrouded in religious imagery. When we think of the word reverence, we may get all kinds of associations that come to us of veiled nuns on bended knees. We might think in terms of acts of worship or gestures of surrender. We may have images that reverence is something that belongs in in churches or in temples or in monasteries. And often our, our sense of reverence is that it's a relationship that we have with something which is outside and usually above ourselves. A relationship we have with something that is higher or loftier or more exalted than ourselves, but usually apart from ourselves in the moment. And the images that we have of reverence are often both kind of romantic and idealistic. And they are images too that often our associations are from the past, have to do with a kind of a religious history that may have nothing to do with our lives any longer. But I wonder if it's possible for us to take this quality of reverence out of that religious imagery. Is it possible for us to leave aside those associations and the religious history that may evoke those associations? And to ask whether this quality of reverence really has anything to do with our lives at this moment? Does reverence have anything to do with how we live our lives? Does it have anything to do with our spiritual lives? Is it a concept, a quality that's irrelevant and meaningless to us? Or is it a quality that has the possibility of deeply enriching our lives? Is it a quality that we can consciously connect with and nurture in a way that is powerful enough to radically change, radically alter how we see the world around us and how we see ourselves? Superficially, it may appear to us that we can't afford this quality of reverence in our lives. Certainly as we grow up, we're taught that there's a, a wisdom in skepticism. And yet how often have we seen that skepticism turns into cynicism? As we grow up, we're taught too that there's a wisdom in doubt. 
in learning to question and to doubt things. And yet we've often seen too that doubt is something that can easily degenerate into a kind of suspiciousness and mistrust and a greater sense of separateness between ourselves and others and ourselves and the world. We learn that it's necessary for our survival to learn how to protect ourselves and yet too often the very armor of our protection that we cultivate turns into a kind of defensiveness and aggressiveness. It may seem that we need greater wisdom than innocence, that we can't afford innocence to survive in our world. And yet often as these very qualities that we feel that we need, as they degenerate, what happens is that we do armor ourselves. At times our hearts become hardened. And in the loss of innocence, there's also easily a loss of a kind of freshness and openness to life. Yet even amongst and amidst the armor that we often find ourselves wearing. We do experience and do find ourselves being touched and moved in very deep and profound ways by things that we see, by people that we meet, by experiences that we encounter, by moments in our lives that have the power to touch our hearts. What is it that we feel when we go out in an evening and the sun's setting and our hearts are open and we're able just to connect with that moment so deeply and we feel a sense of stillness inwardly and really see? What is it that we feel when we meet a person and enco- or encounter a person who is really given the whole of their life to serving others, to giving, to serving the sick, to serving the dying? What is it that we feel when our hearts are open and our minds are still and we hear a child laughing delightedly? Those moments often do touch us deeply. What is it that we feel when we go to a place, a a temple, center, spiritual center, and we encounter a group of people who are genuinely seeking a real quality of peace and meaning and depth in their lives. Those moments that we encounter do move us. We do feel, and we often do feel extraordinarily deeply. And those moments of stillness and openness inwardly, in those encounters, seem to have the power to bring an enormous sense, a deep sense of peace within us. As we are touched and moved, we often do connect with a much deeper sense of serenity and depth within our own being. No matter how skeptical we we may be in our lives, no matter how chaotic we may previously have been, those moments have a profound impact And the impact they have is that we often feel 
opened, we feel uplifted, we feel deepened. Those moments with different people, with nature, with different experiences, in a way they're kinds of symbols to us. It's not that they have magical powers to suddenly resolve every conflict in our lives. It's not that they have magical solutions to answer every issue and every difficulty that we experience. But in a very real way, those moments are symbols of possibility. Those moments are symbols of meaning, of depth, and the response that we actually feel in those moments, the feeling that we often experience in those moments, is a quality of reverence, quality of respect, a deep quality of reverence. Those moments are symbols of something that is sacred. To me, reverence is much more than an action we might engage in. It's much more than a, a form or a gesture that we might act out. To me, reverence is very much the heart of the spiritual life. It's what every spiritual discipline attempts to foster what every spiritual discipline attempts to nurture within ourselves, asking us not so much what is it that we see, what is it that we perceive, what is it that we relate to, but asking us how do we see? How do we relate? How do we listen? How do we open? In spirituality, we encounter many paradoxes. There's one fundamental paradox I'd like to mention that we encounter. Every great teacher, every great tradition, every great teaching essentially delivers to us one very simple and fundamental message. It's a message that doesn't know the boundaries of any particular tradition or any particular time. And the message that we hear over and over and over again is that there is an infinite, an underlying, an unconditioned reality that underlies all separation and division, that underlies all flux and change, that underlies and is in and through all birth and death, all thought and feeling. And that this underlying oneness, this underlying reality, is what answers the needs, the deepest needs of every human being. And that this underlying reality is the essence of our own being. The words that are used to describe that reality differ widely <coughs> We hear it called God, we hear it called suchness, we hear it called oneness, we hear it called truth. The words are not important. What we do here and what is important is that this understanding, this wisdom, is not the territory 
of only special or saintly people. What we do also hear and what is important is that this wisdom and this understanding doesn't belong in some separate dimension, some separate place or some separate time apart from now. But rather that this understanding and this wisdom is imminent, it is present, it is in and through everything, that there is nothing that is separate from it, that everything is interconnected, there is nothing that can be disconnected, and that this underlying oneness is what is sacred, is what is true and what is real. To encounter in any way, on any level, that quality of interconnectedness, that quality of oneness, the response that we feel is reverence. To know on any level that interconnectedness and that oneness is deeply to know that really what happens to another person, be it a joy or a sorrow, equally happens to us. To know on any level that interconnectedness is also to know that the fullness of joy in life is to see the sacred in everything and that the fullness of reverence in life is to endeavor to see the sacred in everything. The spiritual path to me is about cultivating this quality of reverence. It's not about becoming a master It's not about becoming a technician. It's not about having a a spiritual portfolio that is overflowing with credentials and experience. It is much more about learning how to see in a way that is so filled with sensitivity, that is so filled with compassion, that our life, our very life and our very actions, our very words and our very thoughts are an expression of reverence for the oneness that is underlying all things. Cultivating, to me, cultivating that quality of reverence, it doesn't require grand gestures. It doesn't require us to leave behind us our lives of work and relationships and parenting and partnering. To live a life of reverence does not require us, no, it does not require us to become a saint first, does not require us to become holy. It requires us to open our eyes to what is before us. It's a brief poem I'd like to read you. So my daily affairs are really quite ordinary, but I'm in total harmony with them. I don't hold on to anything. I don't reject anything. Nowhere an obstacle or a conflict. Who cares about wealth and honor? Even the poorest thing shines. Miraculous power and spiritual activity in drawing my water and in carrying my wood. The statement of oneness, 
profession of oneness and interconnectedness is one side of the paradox we encounter. The other side of that paradox is what our experience too often tells us, what our eyes tell us, what our thoughts often tell us. And the message that we receive from our eyes and our thoughts and our experiences seems to so much contradict that statement of oneness. We encounter a world that seems to be often so filled with pain and with grief and with anger. We encounter so much conflict, both inwardly and outwardly. And that very experience in those encounters really makes us doubt whether there is such a thing as an underlying oneness, an underlying interconnectedness. We encounter starvation, we encounter violence, we encounter brutality. And we question whether there is anything sacred in that at all. We look within ourselves and we encounter judgment and negativity, we encounter conflict and chaos, and easily conclude that there is very little within ourselves that is worthy of reverence. We feel many responses. When we look at the world, when we look at ourselves, we feel anger, we feel pain, we often feel powerless before the forces of greed and rage. And it seems very logical to be suspicious. It seems very logical to be defensive. We may even feel a certain contempt for the passivity that the spiritual life seems to imply that says that much of this is empty and that beneath all this division and beneath all this separation, we must look more deeply to see the oneness and the connectedness that's there. What is very important for us to understand is that the way that we see the world and the way that we see ourselves will always inform our relationship to that world and our relationship to ourselves. What we see, what we believe to be true, what we, the belief systems that we hold will shape and mold the responses that we have, the ethics that we live by, the actions we engage in. The belief systems we hold will shape our choices and our directions, what we seek for and what we turn away from. What we believe in will shape what we aspire to and what we deny. The world around us, the way we see it, our relationships with other people and with ourselves, the reality of our own experience is shaped by what we honor and by what we trust in. If we believe that there is nothing sacred, if we believe that there is no essential oneness and interconnectedness, our lives will be shaped by that belief. Our actions and our ethics will be shaped by that belief. And if our actions and ethics are shaped by that belief, we will be seduced by what is considered the norm in our society. That it is right and that it is appropriate 
and that it is valid simply to pursue a life of gratification, a life of satisfying me and mine, a life where we live in a way where we don't need or don't, don't have to consider the implications of our lives upon the world around us. If we have no trust in the imminence of oneness, in the imminence of truth, we truly have no basis for a life of respect and compassion. Instead, what we have is a basis for a life that is boundaried by thoughts of me and mine, where the divisions between I and you and between us and them seem so solid and so substantial. And the result of that belief system is no stranger to any of us. We live with the results of that belief system every day in our lives. The conflict, the division, the confusion, the separation and the mistrust between one person and another. There is something I trust in each one of us that rejects that belief system, that mistrusts that belief system. There is something within each one of us, I believe, that yearns to find a deeper sense of meaning, that actually trusts that we have a much greater sense of possibility than simply gratification or pleasure. that seeks to find that depth amidst the life that we're living, that genuinely endeavors to live and to understand what it means to live a life of reverence. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us not just to practice meditation, but to live with a meditative spirit? What does it mean for us not just to yearn for a deeper sense of meaning, but to live in the spirit of looking and seeking for depth in everything that we do in our lives? There's a story of a sadhu who lives in Rishikesh in India. And he lives beside the river in a small wooden hut. And his spiritual practice is very simple. Every morning he gets up and he goes outside of his hut and he stands beside the waterfall outside of his hut and he simply looks at this waterfall all day long. And at night he goes back in his hut and he goes to bed. And the next day he gets up again and he stands beside the waterfall. And at the end of every day he just says, Well done. How amazing. How wonderful. And that's his spiritual practice, is just to see one simple thing with a fullness of appreciation, with an openness of heart, with a real depth of seeing. We're not sadhus in Rishikesh. Most of us don't have our own private waterfalls to go and wander at throughout the day. Most of us live in a life where we don't have time to stand beside waterfalls and marvel at them. What we do have, what each one of us does have, is the capacity to be awake, 
the capacity to listen and the capacity to learn. And there's not one single saint in the world who was born with more than that. It's a very wonderful Zen statement. It says, to a sincere student, every day is a fortunate day. That doesn't mean that if you practice Zen, your life is necessarily going to be filled with sunshine and bliss. That statement instead is a pointer towards the spirit of living, the relationship to life which it is skillful for us to cultivate. It's not easy for us to cultivate that spirit. We do have a tendency to make many distinctions and so we encounter many misfortunes. We make many distinctions between what is worthy and what is unworthy, between what is spiritual and what is not spiritual, between what is holy and what is not holy, between what is worth listening to and what is not worth listening to. We make many distinctions between what we can learn from and what it's not possible for us to learn from. And because of those distinctions, we encounter many misfortunes. When we come to a point in our lives where we can approach washing the dishes in the same spirit as we approach the most profound spiritual experience in our lives, then we can say that we live with a meditative spirit. When we can live in a way where we are willing to listen to the seemingly most mundane chatter from a person that we're totally disinterested in, in the same spirit that we listen to the most fascinating talk in the world, then we can say, truly say, that we live with a meditative spirit. It's a radical change in the way that we see, the way that we approach our lives, and it's not easy. In many ways, it is so much easier and safer for us to inhabit and live in a world of images and conclusions and judgments. In a way, it's so much easier for us to live within an inner world of belief systems and opinions that tell us what is good and what is bad, what is worth pursuing and what we should turn away from, that tell us that, yes, this is worthy, and this is not. It's so much easier. And yet every one of those judgments and every one of those opinions is an acceptance of separation. It's an acceptance of the reality of separation and in the same time a denial of the imminence of oneness and interconnectedness. It's a great Chinese saying, it says, to make one, in making one hair's breadth of difference, we set heaven and earth apart. The moment that we are seduced 
by our distinctions of what is spiritual and what is not. We set one thing apart from another and we close down and we contract. And we are seduced then by the judgments that, is the, that are the very parents of conflict and division. It takes a great commitment a great commitment, a great passion within our hearts to live in a meditative spirit. It's not easy. Our images and our judgments and our belief systems seem to have so much power. They often seem so automatic. You've probably noticed as you walk around here, you know, how much the mind just loves, delights in having a label and a name for everything. And how much of that is an image and filters out our actual experience of the moment and closes down our openness. It's not easy, not easy in any way to live with that openness of heart that is the true mark of a meditative spirit. But we have to remember that our images and judgments have only the power that we give to them, that we give to them through a habit, that we give to them sometimes because we don't have enough space inwardly, that we give to them at times because we simply don't have enough calmness within ourselves. Our challenge is certainly not to suppress those judgments. It's not to suppress those images and those belief systems. Patience and openness and compassion must be our path that embraces not only what we consider to be spiritual, but embraces equally all the judgments and the labels and the images that we often find so difficult. There's no greater obstacle in the spiritual life than the unwillingness to learn, the unwillingness to open. There's a lot of habit that we carry, the habit of judgment, the habit of struggling with whatever doesn't conform to our spiritual images or whatever threatens or displeases us. So often when something displeases us, we make an opponent of it, we make an adversary of it, and we enter into so much struggle. The willingness to learn is not to make any opponents. It's not to create any adversaries but to connect again and again with that quality of openness and patience. Milarepa, great Tibetan yogi, once said that a wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. Those wandering thoughts that we struggle with because they seem to get in the way, those wandering thoughts we struggle with because they seem to distract us from where we need to be. Those wandering thoughts that we judge so heavily because we feel they hinder our spiritual progress. They are the essence of wisdom. They speak to us of our aliveness. They speak to us of our stories. They speak to us of arising and passing. They speak to us of the emptiness of thought. They speak to us of insubstantiality. That's why we need to learn. If one single wandering thought can speak to us of so much, think of how much each moment actually offers to us. 
cultivating a spirit of reverence is learning through patience and through compassion how to be awake, how to open, how to be present, how to appreciate the interconnectedness that is all around us. It is the basis of the spiritual life. To a meditative spirit, the smallest object, the smallest activity, has the power to startle the imagination to wakefulness, to a sense of wonder. To a meditative spirit, ordinary daily life is weighted with mystery and with beauty. That is what we are here for. It is what we are here for. Not to be perfect breathers. Not to have perfect postures. Not to achieve full lotus at the end of a weekend retreat. It's to have that wakefulness where our imaginations, our hearts can be truly startled to a sense of wonder and a sense of beauty. It's not about becoming spiritual or making a destination or a goal out of that, but looking anew at what is here with us already. Looking anew at what we see and how we see it, how we can see. Looking anew at what we listen to and how we can listen. Looking anew at how we walk and how we can walk, how we're touched and how we can be touched. Out of that wakefulness, there comes an appreciation of interconnectedness. There comes the ethics, the true ethics, which is the basis of spiritual depth. The ethics of really knowing that to harm another is to harm ourselves, that to nurture the well-being of another is to nurture our own well-being. To nurture and cultivate a quality of respect. When we dismiss anything, as being unworthy, as being unspiritual, as being an obstacle. We are professing an unwillingness to learn. We are denying our own possibilities. Reverence is not a kind of romantic ideal. It is really no more than an acknowledgement of possibilities. That even the things that seem to irritate us so much the very things that seem to hinder us so much, the very things that seem to be such obstacles in our lives and so annoying, those are our vehicles for depth. Those are our vehicles for understanding. Acknowledging the possibility of learning within them is a life of reverence. It's nothing more complicated than that. It was learning that quality of respect and openness. Each day is a fortunate day to a sincere student. How much more deeply can we see? How much more deeply can we listen? How much more deeply can we respond in this day? How much can we learn to open? How much lightness of heart, how much freedom can we find in letting go?
<coughs> being able to bring those questions to ourselves, being able to reflect on those questions, being able to appreciate the possibilities of each moment. This is traveling a path of reverence. That way of seeing, that way of questioning, brings a different dimension to the spiritual path. You know, so often the spiritual path is looked upon as being something which is so long and so arduous, and that we have, and that suffering is a stepping stone to liberation. And so often the spiritual path is looked upon as one long endurance test. And at the end of it, perhaps, and hopefully awaits us a kind of enlightened retirement after we've earned it. So often the spiritual path is looked upon as a process of overcoming obstacles, overcoming hindrances, so that we can be rewarded with peace and with happiness and with bliss and with, uh, with joy and all the various things that we come to the spiritual life for. as a path in which enlightenment and liberation lies at some long distant point in the future after we've worked out our stuff. To me, this is all, this is all some kind of belief system. It, it, to me, it, it, it smacks of original sin. It has nothing to do with original blessing, which is the imminence of truth, the imminence of interconnectedness. It has all to do with time and with result and with future and with becoming. To me, to cultivate this quality of reverence, to open to an appreciation of interconnectedness, brings a totally different dimension to the spiritual path. Because it's never about anything that is apart from now. It is never about anything that is separate from this very moment that we're experiencing. It's never about anything but how much we can open to where we are how much we can open our eyes, how much we can see, how much we can listen, how much we can connect and be touched. It's about the quality of our presence. And the quality of our presence, quality of reverence in our presence, a quality of willingness to learn, a quality of openness, means that this present moment holds everything that we need. It offers to us everything that we need for understanding, for wisdom, and for compassion. And that we need never look further than the very moment that we're in and everything that it embraces. And learning to travel this path of appreciation, of openness. It may seem difficult. It may seem so difficult because of our habits, because of our judgments, because of our belief systems. On one level it may be difficult, on one level, on another level it couldn't be any easier. How much closer can we get 
to truth, how much closer can we get to oneness, to interconnectedness, than where we are? And our challenge, our challenge, and perhaps our spiritual walk, is not to attempt to overcome where we are, but to open our eyes to see more deeply, to question, to reflect, to open our hearts to this moment that we're experiencing. May all beings live with joy. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. If we could have a couple of minutes quietly together, and then we'll have a break.
would like to speak about this evening is the question of vision, spiritual vision. Every great journey that we make in our lives, every important journey, whether it's a journey to climb a mountain or an inner journey, calls really for a profound sense of inner vision. It is vision that inspires us to, to go into territory that's unfamiliar and unknown to us. Its vision seems it gives us the courage and the steadfastness to leave behind territory that is familiar and that is known to us. Our world as we know it is a world that has been radically and profoundly influenced by the vision of many individuals. Most of the radical transformations, social, spiritual transformations, that have affected our lives, that have affected the world that we live in, those transformations have often been rooted in the vision of individuals. There's been many women who have shown to us the clarity of their vision of how we can be as women. And their vision has inspired us. Think of someone like, like Gandhi, how his vision of a land that was free affected the world around him. Of Martin Luther King, how his vision affected the world around him. So many people that have played roles in our lives, influential roles, what has touched us and what has moved us has been the power and the depth of their vision. Our hearts are often touched in very profound ways by the stories of these people, by the way that they've managed to change the world, by the power of their love, by the power of their trust. And their stories spark often our own inner vision Our inner vision is sparked by the stories and the examples of people who've really managed to know what it means to live with love in the midst of, in the midst of hatred. The vision is not just the territory of these great and famous people. We're equally touched by the story of a child who, managed, who is able to meet a life-threatening illness with grace. I know for myself, my own journey started by simply being in touch with the most simple people in the world. I certainly never went to India in the beginning with grandiose notions of enlightenment. But when I lived with a group of Tibetan refugees who were poor, who were hungry, who had no clothes, who had nothing they could call their own, and they, all, they just smiled, they smiled. They smiled almost all the time. They were so happy in the midst of so much difficulty and conflict. For me, that was what began my journey. 
I had to understand what made them smile. Our hearts are touched by the story of a refugee who has nothing and who knows forgiveness. In many ways, in deeper ways sometimes, it's the very simplicity of these people's lives, their trust and their vision that gives us a sense of wonder and lets us know that the power of transformation is really never the territory of only saintly or special people. We are inclined often to take just very special people and to put them on a pedestal and to make heroes out of them or to make saints or gurus out of them, someone that we admire or emulate or look up to. And it is true that the vision of great people of the past and present does inspire us and does move us. But the message of them is always the same, to look within ourselves, to really look within ourselves, to remember that vision is not the preordained gift of only a select group of people, to remember that it's not just a Dalai Lama who can touch the hearts of others, that it's not just a Gandhi who can forgive, the people that we admire, they weren't necessarily born with innate qualities of saintliness. They're human, just like us. At times, sometimes foolish, sometimes wise. But born as we are born, and live as we live, with the capacity to open, the capacity to learn, and the capacity to deepen in wisdom. These are the gifts that we share with conscious <coughs> beings. And it's out of these very gifts that we have that our own vision is born. The vision that can transform our lives. The vision that can lead us to make radical leaps within our seeing, within our consciousness. Vision is not a passive thing. It's not an ideal. It's not a fantasy. It's not a kind of product of our imagination of what I could become or the nice kind of land I could inhabit. Vision is actually powerful. It propels us and moves us. It leads, leads to shifts within ourselves. It leads us to attempt what may seemingly have been impossible for us to attempt. It leads us to make changes. It gives us the trust to risk failure and to turn away from what may seem easier and safer to us. And I think it is vision that allows us to overturn belief systems, to be radical enough to overturn belief systems it's why so many visionaries of past and present are usually called crazy. Because they're not bound by belief systems. They have a sense of possibility that extends beyond prevailing standards, prevailing structures, prevailing belief systems. What vision does, it inspires movement towards some way of being, some way of seeing some way of understanding 
Sometimes we don't even have a particular goal in mind or a particular concept or image in mind. And yet we are moving within ourselves towards something that's not clearly formulated. We're encouraged by a sense of vision to extend ourselves beyond the boundaries of what we know, our personal experience, our individual lives, our past histories, to extend ourselves beyond those boundaries and to reach for what we don't know and for what we haven't yet experienced. It's a major leap we make in a spiritual journey. It's a leap of leaving behind what is secure, of leaving behind us the props that are familiar to us, and being willing to risk that kind of vulnerability. This vision, it's not some kind of magical benediction. You know, we don't sit and somehow get struck by some blinding flash of vision. It's not even necessarily some great revelation that we have in our lives or that we've carried without, throughout, with us throughout our lives. Sometimes vision is born simply of a refusal to accept the unacceptable. That's sometimes how vision is born of simply a refusal any longer to accept the unacceptable. And the unacceptable is what causes pain, is what causes limitation, is what causes injustice, is what causes oppression, be it external or be it within ourselves. Vision is also born of faith faith in ourselves, an unshakable faith in our own sense of possibility, a faith that our world can be transformed, that we can be transformed, a trust perhaps in our own <coughs> innate goodness, our own innate possibilities a trust that that can be touched within other people, a trust that that goodness has power, that it can be effective. That kind of faith, sometimes it's called naive. In the world that we live in now, sometimes that quality of faith is called naivety or gullibility or a kind of negative simplicity. <coughs> Certainly it is a faith that doesn't have any proof of gar or guarantees. It doesn't have any proof and it doesn't have any guarantees. But it's not blind. It can be incredibly steadfast. I would say that in this journey, and in this journey of transformation, Faith is actually rather essential. That's sometimes difficult for us to hear because we are not brought up in a way in which faith is given a lot of respect. In fact, that we are often taught 
that faith is the territory of the foolish. And we are often taught that it's far more wise for us to be skeptical, cynical, doubtful, suspicious, mistrustful, that this is how really to proceed in our world. Sometimes we've had a kind of blind faith shoved down our throats and we don't, we have an immediate resistance to the word faith, you know, along comes all our kind of religious images. Sometimes it's hard for us to hear, but I would say that faith is essential in this path. Faith is essential for us to realize our own sense of vision. Faith is essential for us to make that movement towards what is unknown. When we make that movement in our meditation, in ourselves, in our spiritual lives, we often make that movement in the midst of what seems to be a whole lot of adversaries and obstacles and difficulties. We see there is so much that pulls us towards the past. There's so much that pulls us towards what we know, that pulls us towards what is familiar. There's our fears and our insecurities and our conditioning and our past histories. And all of that seems to be so very, very powerful. We often don't hear a lot of applause inwardly. We don't often don't hear a lot of affirmation inwardly. You know, go for it. You're doing fantastic. You're doing wonderful. It's really worthwhile. <laughs> Instead, what we often hear within ourselves is, no, you can't do it. It's too much for you. You never make it. Anybody else, but not you. <laughs> we have to be able to make this journey without applause inwardly. For a time, the applause will come. But for a time, we may have to make this journey without that applause and affirmation. And that is difficult because often what we hear within ourselves is the opposites. It's the ridicule and the censure. And it is faith in our own vision, actually, that sees us through that. It is faith in our own possibilities that sees us through that, that gives us the courage to leave it. would ask us to reflect a little on how important vision might be to us. Do we have any? Do you have any? Is it a companion in your journey? Was it there at the beginning? Is it emerging? Do you really have any vision of your possibility, your own potential? Can you listen, you know, to these various things we throw out up here that, mm. you know, tell you again and again, you're free, you're awake, you're whole, mm. and not hear this contradicting voice inwardly? Do we really have any sense of vision? And what difference would it make in our path? Mm. Would it help us? It's true that we often undertake a spiritual journey in a fairly murky way. Certainly, I know that I did. 
in a fairly you know, unclear way. We're often fairly clear about what, that we want change. You know, we come with some <laughs> idea. I, I would like some change. We're often fairly aware of what we want to change. You know, we're fairly aware that we'd like to change pain, we'd like to change dissatisfaction, we'd like to change superficiality. We're often fairly clear about what we would like to leave behind us, although the list gets longer the longer we sit. <laughs> we at least begin with some sense of clarity of what we would like to leave behind us. We would like to leave alienation. We would like to leave separation. We would like to leave behind us judgment and reaction and aversion, anger, greed, possessiveness, <laughs> pride, uncertainty, doubt, division. I'm sure you could, we could all add to this long list of what we would like to leave behind. And at the same time, we are magnetized by the promises of this spiritual journey because it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds great, you know, when we hear about unconditional love, compassion, peace, serenity. You know, it's like a magnet for us. Is this possible? But when we begin, it may not always seem so possible for us. And because it, we may not have that much vision within ourselves, when our vision or in our own sense of faith and vision is weak, we easily get diverted. We're easily swayed by the power of everything that we're working with, by the power of doubt and of uncertainty. You know, we may have the occasional good sitting where we believe that this vision is a possibility, but we probably have a lot more moments when we really doubt our own capacity when we really doubt our own potential. Some people begin you know, a retreat very intent on wisdom, on liberation, on understanding. And many people, after some time in meditation, they begin to feel, well, you know, really, I'm, perhaps I'm not good enough. Perhaps I haven't got the right karma. Perhaps I haven't got the right ability you know, maybe it's just not for me. And the doubt comes in and we're swayed and divided. Vision is what transforms that uncertainty and that insecurity. It doesn't dissolve it. It doesn't get rid of it. But it allows us not to believe so strongly in it. And it seems to me that it's vision that allows us to make those really radical leaps in our consciousness. That it is actually vision, not time. Not time. That allows us really to let go of belief systems that are really limiting. Time doesn't have that much to do with it. Don't feel that because this is your first retreat, by the tenth retreat, there's some sort of certainty that you'll be able to let go of your belief systems. Don't feel that if it's your 10th retreat, by the time you do another 20, you're going to let go of your belief systems. Time does not have that much to do with this.
It's a radical leap in consciousness. Faith and trust and vision have much to do with that. They give us courage. They give us determination. They give us openness. To leave, to really deeply let go of conditioning, of beliefs or history, of images that have previously defined our world and ourselves and our way of seeing. Without that vision, this path can become an endless journey of modification, alteration, and improvement. Without that vision, we can be reduced to endlessly reacting to the past, to a personal history that is over, and yet that we're not really yet willing to bury. Without vision, instead of reaching for horizons, we may well resign ourselves become, to becoming more familiar with our boundaries. We have a tendency to think in terms of continuity, in terms of time. And we basically have three frames of reference for that time and continuity. We have the past, we have the present, and we have the future. For us within our individual worlds, the link between those three frames of reference is our sense of I. We have a sense of who we used to be, of who we were in the past. And we're aware that who we used to be and who we have been has helped to mold and to shape who we believe ourselves to be now. And we also sense that who we will be in the future, who we will, who we will become, is totally linked to who we are now. We see our relationship to the present is molded by the past. The who we used to be includes all of our memories and our past experiences. That who we were includes the ways in which we were hurt or wounded, the things that brought us happiness and love, the things that undermined us and the things that enhanced us. We see that who we are in the present seems to be molded by what has happened in the past. The way we relate to others, whether we look upon the world with suspicion and anger, or whether we look upon the world with openness and fearlessness. The way that we see ourselves in the moment, the defenses we experience, the feelings we experience, the images we go through, the ways that we react, the ways that we might open, and the ways that we might close down the ways that we can judge, or the ways that we forgive. The threads of all of this we see in the present reaching far back into the past, sometimes beyond even our conscious memories. How often in this time here together have we experienced a totally new feeling? a really new thought, 
a totally new image, a totally new response. You could probably shortlist them on the fingers of one hand. They're not very often, so infrequent. I mean, there are, certainly there are thoughts and, and, and feelings that are creative and, and really revealing and insightful. And yet when we look at the bulk of the thoughts, the responses, the feelings that we experience, the reactions, we can see ourselves replaying previous moments that we've replayed many times. And here they are again. And we know them well. The future is unknown to us. Well, that doesn't mean, of course, that we don't think of it. And when we think about the future, we tend to think of it in two different ways. When we see the way the past and the present are linked, we often don't feel that hopeful about the future. We often feel, well, you know, I'm like this. I'm probably always going to be like this. My mother was like this. Maybe my grandmother was like this. Who knows how many generations were like this and how many generations are going to be exactly the same in the future, experiencing these same patterns of anger or patterns of grief or patterns of estrangement. The other way that we think of the future is, of course, much more hopeful. We tend to think of it as an improvement upon the present and upon the past. Rarely do we have a thought of the future that is actually divorced in any way, in any way from the present of the p- or the past. How can we? We tend to hope for more of one thing and hope for less of another. <laughs> we hope that we will have more insight, more happiness, more compassion, more sensitivity. And it seems that that hope has to be accompanied by its opposite of having less anger or less confusion or less chaos. The lists are endless. This is how we think when we're entrenched in these thoughts of continuity. But we don't always see that in the, set, the very center of that sense of continuity is an impaired sense of vision. It's a damaged sense of I. When we see that, we wonder, when we think in terms of continuity, how much can actually change? When the center of that continuity is the sense of I that it has these belief systems built into it, it's not separate from those belief systems. The sense of I is constructed of these belief systems. How much can I can actually change when I which is constructed of these belief systems, is trying to bring about the changes. This clearly needs to be another way of seeing this altogether. When we focus, I want to look at this sense of I at the center of it. When we focus on the present, often what we see It's the sense of the past intruding upon the present as we would like it to be. Isn't this so? We look upon the present moment and our sense of how we would like to see the present moment 
is impaired or seems to be distorted by the intrusion of the past. I mean, take an example, we would like to look at ourselves, we would like to see peace, and we see the replay of all records. That has nothing to do with the present moment, they have something to do with the past. We look at another person, we'd like to greet them with openness and with freshness, and we find these images come up that may have something to do with them, may have something to do with some completely other person that happened to wear the same color socks. But there's images arise. And we see this intrusion of the past again and again upon the present. When we see that happening, it does seem logical to think that what we then need to do is to alter in some way the past so that we can see the present more clearly. Often what we think we need to do is to modify in some ways that which is unwelcome from the past so that we can have more openness in the present. We do that by focusing upon the past as it appears in the present. The images, the histories, the models, the conditioning, the stories. We focus upon them because we believe that by that focusing we're somehow going to get them out of the way of us seeing the present clearly. What often happens is that, in that is that we become more familiar with our boundaries. We become very intimately acquainted with our boundaries. We know all the storylines. We know the cast of characters. We know the histories. We know the reactions that come. We can feel very familiar with our boundaries. And sometimes what we do actually is we do learn to soften and to stretch those boundaries in some ways. You know, because we pay attention, we extend a careful attention, a sensitive and a compassionate attention. And so often we do learn that we do soften those boundaries in many ways. We learn that we can be more balanced and more equanimous. We learn that we can be clearer and we can learn that we can be more accepting. And in a way, this brings about seemingly some sense of change. We feel better inwardly. We feel lighter. We feel less burdened. We feel more accepting. And in many ways, this is very necessary. Because certainly an, un an unhealthy sense of I cannot be let go of. An unhealthy sense of I. I mean, there's probably no such thing as a healthy sense of I, but the way that I'm using this unhealthy sense of I is when our relationship to who I am is so filled with denial and negation and suppression that there's no space to be present with it. And it is necessary to come to a place within ourselves where there is that spaciousness and that acceptance and that lack of denial and suppression before there can be any letting go. And we need to learn the lessons of that kind of healing. We all need to learn the lessons of how to be gentle, how to be loving, how to be kind within ourselves, how to be compassionate. These are all necessary lessons for us to learn. But it's not 
the end of the line. That is not the end of the line. To feel that we come to a place that our destination is just to be more accepting and more kind. I'm not under undermining that in any way or putting that down in any way. But to know that to come to that place within ourselves where there is greater openness, where there is greater spaciousness and acceptance, that is the place in which vision grows. That is the place where we have real seeds of possibility, a real sense of possibility really beginning to emerge into our consciousness. My sense is that unless that vision does emerge, and sometimes it needs a nudge and a poke, that unless this vision does emerge, that it can become really quite difficult for us to move from this place where we are just staying in balance. It can be quite difficult for us to move from a place, you know, where we, we feel steady, we feel balanced, and then we seem to lose it. And we have all the tools available to us. We become familiar with the tools inwardly of how to restore calm and how to restore openness. And we do that, and then we lose it again. But then we fix it again, and then we lose it again, and then we fix it again, and then we lose it again. It is a place we come to in meditation often. It's a place we come to in our lives. I call it the fix and do place. Where we know how, we know the tools, we know the vehicles, and we know the skills of coming to calmness and peacefulness and serenity. And we also know that that lasts until some anger or some image or some reaction arises and we see that and then we fix and do and we get back to calm and steadiness and peace again. It's an okay place to be for a while. It's an okay place to be for a while. It's necessary for us to feel some confidence in those skills. It's necessary for us to know that we don't have to be victims of our minds, that we don't have to get lost, that we don't have to be endlessly overwhelmed. It's a necessary and a place of learning for us. But sometimes <coughs> we despair of it. Sometimes it seems like we've reached a plateau of this where we can rely on a certain amount of calm and spaciousness. We can rely that we're also going to lose it, but we can rely that we'll get it back again. And sometimes it seems that this is a kind of plateau, and it is a spiritual plateau. One thing that is possible to do in that plateau is to become very busy, very busy with our responses to what comes up. You know, that great meditation expression something comes up. We can almost rely on something always coming up. No matter how calm you are, something's going to come up. Now one place we can get to on that plateau is this kind of guarded sense of waiting for something to come up so that we can do something with it. The other thing that could happen is that we can actually 
become so familiar with this cycle, so familiar with this cycle, and so familiar with our patterns that it actually becomes kind of boring. You know, you see a pattern that arises again and again and again on retreats, perhaps, of fear or anxiety or agitation, and you sort of expect it to be there every retreat you do. When you come into a retreat wondering, well, what day is it going to come on this time? Or when it does come, you know, it's kind of like an old friend that you have a love-hate relationship with. You know, oh, it's here again. Here's the anger. Yeah, here's the self-judgment. Here's the fear. It is hard even to get excited about it anymore. It's just there, you know, it's so well. It's kind of. Eh. <laughs> to me, these plateaus are very important times. I think the boredom is important. This sense of having had enough. I've been here enough times. I've been up with this, battling with it, struggling with it, overcoming it. That you've been through the whole cycle. It's still here. I think this boredom, this sense of, I've actually had enough. I've been there enough times. I know it. I've learned the lessons I've needed to learn about this anger, or about this greed, or about this judgment. Sometimes there isn't always a deeper lesson to learn. Sometimes we've learned them. You know, it's like you have a hole in your tooth. You keep poking at it with your tongue. <laughs> you know every crack and crevice in that sore tooth. It's time to go to the dentist. It's time to do something more. You've learned it. You've learned it. You know, if you had that sore tooth on a retreat, I might suggest that it's useful for you for a day or two to learn about pain. There's a limit to how much we're going to learn from pain. There's actually a limit. And sometimes we know, have to know when we've reached that limit. When we know we've reached that limit, I call this plateau a place of spiritual discontent, which can be crucial. Crucial in our deepening and in our understanding this spiritual discontent. Different things can happen on it. When we get to that place of spiritual discontent, you know, and everything seems so familiar, we can lose faith at that point. We can really lose faith in ourselves and just feel and accept or re resign ourselves to our boundaries. Or we might at that point of familiarity begin, you know, really want to look for something more exciting. There must be somebody else, you know, who's got a kind of more exciting path, or, you know, a better answer, or, you know, some magical power, you know, there must be something else. It could also be a time when there can be a real emergence of inner vision, a real transformation within our consciousness. A time when we sense that really there is something more there is some greater possibility. This is the kind of vision that can emerge. It can emerge a vision which is truly liberating, where we don't always turn to the past 
or don't always feel so called to react towards the appearance of the past and the present. It's a time when there can be a real forsaking of the belief systems and the histories and the limitations that we've previously defined ourselves by. It can be a time when there can be a deep inner willingness to let go. Just really to let go. Not only of the histories and the descriptions, but of that sense of I and all that it means to us. What difference would it make in our lives? What difference would it make in our meditation if we no longer believed in the limited images that arise? What difference would it make if those old images that, could come, that came up and you just didn't believe in them at all? What difference would it make in the way that you saw yourself if the stories and the constructions weren't believed in? Who would we be if we didn't define ourselves by our histories? Who would we be if we didn't define ourselves by what has already gone by? Not that it disappeared, but that we no longer defined ourselves by the memories, the accumulation of past impressions. Who would we be if that made simply no impression on our consciousness? How would we live if we didn't feel governed by fear and by holding? We have a long history of describing ourselves by limitation, of learning what to do in response to that limitation. What would we do if that was no longer required of us? What would we do if we didn't feel called upon to fix and to alter and to modify? It's a fundamental question in our spiritual lives, in our inner lives. Are we willing to forsake? Are we willing to let go of all of this? It doesn't take special skills. It doesn't take time. We don't have to be experts. There's many qualities that are spoken of in spirituality, of compassion, of generosity, of forgiveness, of surrender. They're not stages or destinations that we reach. They're not prerequisites to liberation. They are the expressions and the qualities of a liberated heart and liberated consciousness in this moment. There's nothing more real than that liberation. What the core of the spiritual life is described as is no longer believing the unreal to be real. This is what liberation is described as no longer believing the unreal to be real. That's laying down the burden. 
that is the end of the garden. That really is the beginning and in many ways the fulfillment of the path. It's just no longer believing the unreal to be real. That doesn't leave us with nothingness. That leaves us. It offers to us. It reveals to us profound wisdom. Profound understanding. Profound sense of being awake. And our vision, our vision is in a very real way the vehicle to that awakening. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with wakefulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.